morning to all of you. Um, it's good to see all of you here, whoever you are and wherever you've come from, however old or young you are, it's just great to see you here this morning in our service this morning. I was just saying it's good to see all of you here for those who have just arrived, young and old alike and wherever you're from, it's great to see you here this morning. Okay, we're going to sing, Lord, when we meet to worship thee, before us let thy glory pass. And I think that's, I like those words very much. I think uh, we want to see God's glory because that's the thing that inspires us. And of course, the glory of God was radiant in the person of Jesus. And, and that's what we want to see and be reminded of. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Remembering things is interesting and, and uh, we do all sorts of things to remember and this service this morning and every Sunday morning is to help us to remember, not just to remember a death and a resurrection and certainly the bread and the wine do that for us, but to remember a whole lot more, to remember love, to remember God's love. To remember how much God actually cares for each one of us and wants each one of us close to himself. So let's sing this. Lord, when we meet to worship thee, before us let thy glory pass. Proclaim thy mercy, rich and free. In Jesus may we see thy face. Let's approach our Father in prayer. Holy Father, Holy Father, it is good to be here again. This is our hall, but it's your house. Um, and Lord Jesus, this is your table. And again, you've invited us to meet around this table to, well, to partake of a, of a, a symbolic feast together. Um, but in reality, we enjoy the feast of your love, Lord. Lord, we pray that as we meet here together that you will bless us richly, Lord. Lord, we've been singing about some lovely things about um, your rich mercy and your free mercy. Um, we've been uh, singing about learning to fear through thy law and yet your tender mercy to prove. It, it's about sort of coming to know that you love us and that you are merciful and that we can come to you with any problem with absolutely any problem and know that you hear us Lord and know that you want us close to you that's love we don't understand that fully Lord but we try to reach out and take hold of your love and to understand that. Lord, in our service today, please help us to understand that a little better and to come to know you a bit better and so to come close to you. Bring us close, Lord, and bless us. Bless me, bless Richard too, and help us to say the things that are right and pleasing and, and encouraging to all of us. Bless each one of us as we engage in remembering and in coming close to you, Lord. Thank you. Amen. I'm going to ask Alex now to, to come forward if he's, if he's ready with the announcements. Uh, announcements are difficult things and I do want 
you to appreciate this, that in particular, it's very difficult to, to catch all the visitors who come. If we miss any visitors, it's not because we don't want you here or, or you know, we don't like visitors. We love visitors and we really want you to be here. So be here and enjoy it and welcome. Thank you, John. So the care news this week. It's good to know that Pete Griffiths came out of hospital on Thursday. He is a lot better, um, still has some way to go. It's thought that his confusion um, was due to a small stroke. So he's been seen by a stroke specialist. There doesn't seem to be any long-lasting damage. If you do want to visit, please phone Chris first in case Pete's not really up to it. His memory is still a bit hazy, but that should improve. He's also seen um, his doctor on Friday at Christie's to discuss further treatment. So please continue to pray for Pete and Chris and uh, the families. Um, I heard yesterday that, um, sadly, that Margaret Hughes from Stockport died. Um, she was ill for a while, I think, with a brain tumour. So please keep her husband, David, um, and their family in your prayers as well. Please remember, uh, Matt Cheshire's gone over to his mum and dad's because uh, his dad's been taken ill with a regular heartbeat. So please pray for Matt um, and Matt's mum and dad. A few other people that we mentioned recently continue to remember Cy Dunnigan, his wife and new baby, as they go through a difficult patch. Anna and Dave, who we see irregularly because of Dave's move and work, so please continue to pray for them. It's lovely to have Gladys with us today, even though Gladys isn't feeling so well. We pray for you, Gladys, continually. Please continue to remember other people that, that have long-term illnesses or are just getting on a bit, like Pauline. Um, love to have you with us, Marion. Um, pray that your, your health will improve. Please also remember Eloise, Sarah Lewis, Tammy, Haley, and uh, the, the Stretford group all people who are still members of our church that we don't see very often for various reasons. There's also a few pregnant mums and a few new babies, so there's lots of people to pray about. And, of course, our brother John in the Congo, which if anyone was here last night, we heard an update on and quite a bit of information about what's going on over in Congo. So those are the care announcements for this week. Please continue to pray for all the work that the church is doing and all of your brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Holy Father, again we come to you, Father, knowing that you are our Father and that you care for us. Father, I've been reading the scriptures, some of the Old Testament, which is sometimes difficult for us. And seeing through it and seeing that you're actually working to bring people close to yourself and Father, we do thank you for that. And we are bringing people to you, Lord, and we know that you know them. Um, people who need our prayers, need us to be aware of them. You know them, you know their problems, and I know that you care for them. But we need to bring them to you, and that's right for us. Lord, there are people that we often, perhaps always bring to you, people like Gladys and Pauline, and we 
pray that you will be with them, Lord, to bless them and to encourage them. And Marion, it's it's good to see Marion this morning, Lord. Thank you for that. And and I know that uh, she's got a bit more voice today. And thank you for that. And please bless her, Lord. <clears throat> and then there's people like Jack and Mary. And it was lovely to see Mary yesterday, Lord. Thank you for that. She is looking better than she did and, and that's good thank you Lord <clears throat> and Pete Griffiths of course is, is in our minds a lot of the time and we were worried about him but thank you Lord that it, it wasn't cancer in his brain but that it was a, a, a small um, stroke help him to recover fully and bring him back to us Lord and keep him close to you. Lord, we heard about Margaret Hughes dying, and I gather she was in her 70s. Lord, I don't know her. I guess some people here do, or did. Um, we'd like to pray for David, her husband, and for any of the family, that you will bless and comfort them in their loss. I know that Margaret's death was quite sudden. Help them to cope with that and bless them. And Matt Cheshire's dad has got this problem with his heart and we do pray that you will be with him. I can't remember his name, Lord, but I know him. And he's a lovely man and we do pray that you will bless him and his family. And Anne and Dave, I think, in their move, whatever, bless them and help them in that. <clears throat> There are other people like Eloise and Tammy and Haley and maybe others who we don't see much of at all. We don't know where they are and sometimes we try and reach out to them, Lord, and, and sometimes that's very useful and sometimes it doesn't seem to bear any fruit. Help us to reach out and let them know that we are thinking of them and caring for them and Bring them back to you, Lord, if that's pleasing to you. It's good to see Sammy um, on, Saturday, on Friday, rather, and we do pray that you will bless them. And the various pregnant mums, I don't even know who they all are now, uh, and the, the young children, the babies, Lord, they need your care. And the children that are here now, and the children that have gone over into Sunday school, I, it's a... It's a very difficult and dangerous world. I know you know that, Lord. And we are frightened for our children. And we want you, Father, to keep them close to you. Lord Jesus, be near them. I know you are. I know that because you say that you're, you're near us and near our children. Be with them and bless them and... Bring them close to you, Lord. Lord, Simon Dunnigan has had a, a, a difficult time, and you know that. And Annie, uh, sorry, uh, Angie, his wife, and the baby. I don't think Simon's seen the baby yet. But we do thank you that there's been a bit of improvement. I don't know what that is, but Lord, thank you. Let that continue and let them really get to the root of the problem and let them come home and let them be a, a happy family. And again, Lord, our prayer is that you'll bring them close to you. And then Paul and Jerry, of course, um, 
they have their problems and Jerry, Simon's mum, is distraught with all the problems. Please bless and comfort them. I think I saw Hannah and the baby today. Lord, wherever they are, bless them and bring them close to you. Father, you know, a lot of us saw some slides about our brothers and sisters in Africa yesterday. People who are going through terrible times. Our sisters who are raped and subject to horrific sexual abuse. And our brothers who are forced to do things they don't want to do and, and who no doubt are beaten and hurt and, and maybe even killed. Lord, here in this room we feel so warm and comfortable and, and good and it is so easy for us to forget our brothers and sisters in Africa and in South America and in Asia and wherever they are. Lord Jesus, be with them. I know that you are and I know that even in difficult times you are bringing people close to you and I thank you for that. And of course there's John Bonani. It was lovely to see pictures of him yesterday. He's our brother, our dear brother. We know him and so we feel some warmth towards him. Keep him safely and encourage him and strengthen him but all those others that we don't know as well, bless them. Holy Father, thank you. Father, send Jesus soon to bring an end to all these troubles and to fill the earth with your honour and your glory. Amen. They're not the readings, the daily readings. They are somewhat different. Richard Lang is here to speak to us and um, he would like these read. So we're going to read from the first book of Kings and chapter 21. Now before we do that, it, I, I know it's very difficult sometimes to sort of catch a chapter right in midstream, as it were, as to what's going on. So let me just tell you a little bit of what's going on, if I find the bit of paper I wrote it on. Back in, in chapter 16, I think it is, we read that Ahab... Ahab has become king of Samaria. Samaria is the northern country. There's Samaria in the north and Judah in the south. Okay, And Ahab has become king of Samaria. And Ahab is a bad man. Um, <clears throat> I actually believe that in all that goes on in the next few chapters with Elijah and so on, God is appealing to Ahab. He would dearly love this bad man Ahab to turn around and come back to him. And I think sometimes we have to think like that. <clears throat> anyway, we, we also read that he, he marries Jezebel and she's uh, the daughter of the king of the Sidonians and uh, she worships Baal and so uh, Ahab um, builds a temple to Baal in Samaria and worships Baal there and then you know Elijah comes along and says to Ahab it's not going to rain and it doesn't rain for quite a long time and, and then he says it is going to rain <coughs> and in between those um, he challenges the prophets of Baal you remember and all the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Ashtarah are, are slaughtered at the end because he says the prophet who sends fire, sorry, the God who sends fire down from heaven is the true God. And of course the God of Israel, the God of Elijah does that. 
And then we come to to 1 Kings chapter 21 and Ahab has a problem with a neighbour or rather a neighbour has a problem with Ahab. And Joe Richardson is going to come forward please Joe, and she's going to read for us chapter 21 of the first book of Kings. 1st Kings chapter 21 Sometime later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth to Jezreelites. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard used for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel his wife said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, but he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you provoked me to anger, 
and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city. And the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay on in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Our second reading is taken from Matthew's Gospel, and it's chapter, chapter 20 from Matthew's Gospel. And Sam, wherever Sam is, is going to come up and lead us in the reading of this. Okay. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when they came, so when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favour of him. 
What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand, at your right, and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy upon us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Thank you for that. That sounded good. And I think the words are so important to us. Richard, would you please come and uh, give us some words of encouragement? Thank you. Thank you very much, John. As ever, really is a great pleasure to share your service this Sunday morning and to be with you. Uh, your theme is, is remembering things, and, and I'm going to remember uh, one or two things on this Remembrance Sunday. The first thing I remember is I think the last time I was here, the exhortation was given by Tony Norris, and I remember it well. It was on jealousy. It was a very powerful, hard-hitting uh, exhortation. It certainly hit me uh, very hard, and it made me think. Uh, and it made me think uh, about jealousy's fellow traveller. I'll tell you what jealousy's fellow traveller is in a minute, but I want to do that by remembering an old friend of mine, an old friend of uh, Old Trafford, John Norcross. I was with Sue last night and I got her agreement for me to tell you this, this tale. John told a very good tale and uh, Jealousy's fellow traveller was travelling with them one Sunday morning as they were coming home from church in Stockport. They came to a set of traffic lights, one of those typical situations where two lanes go into one. And I suppose because John was in Sunday morning mode, he courteously let the Fort Sierra on his left go in front of him. John told me at the time it was Sue who provoked him, and here's Envy's fellow traveller. It was Sue who provoked him because a little MGB behind the Fort Sierra was wanting to get in as well. And Sue said, don't let him in, John. Let one in, we're not letting in two. And competition, competitiveness, that's jealousies fellow traveller took possession of John and a little game of chicken ensued 
that was only resolved when Sue noticed that the MGB was connected to the Sierra by a tow rope. <laughs> you can imagine how the guy in the MGB felt as the two cars got, got closer and closer together. You see, competition can get in the way. Uh, competition can get in the way. And I, I, I've never used the exhortation to talk about competition. I, I want to put with that ambition uh, together. Because there's a difference between jealousy and competition. When I listened to Tony, he illustrated so clearly uh, uh, what a vice jealousy is. It, was a one, it really was a wonderful exhortation on his part, very honest, and that's why it came across so powerfully, a destructive, divisive emotion that, that contributes nothing. But whereas competition, ambition... Can we all agree that that is unquestionably a vice? It's not, oh, well, people are nodding. Good, good. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure, you see. Because at least competition, can it not, get the lazy student out of bed on a Monday morning and get him from his bed to the lecture theatre when it's raining? And some would argue, some would say cogently, that competition is also the thing that drives progress that drives innovation, that drives creativity, that makes people work uh, and contributes uh, to the good things that we see around us in society. Uh, and and, and wouldn't, wouldn't sport be a very poor thing, something that we all enjoy, uh, without that little motor of uh, competition uh, that, 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 that exists uh, in all of us. But as I suspect some of you may be thinking, yes, but uh, competition, uh, it may be the engine that drives the economy, and, and with the exception, let's face it, of North Korea and Cuba, uh, it seems to be the, the driver of most economies in the world. But it's also the driver of social inequality, isn't it? It's probably also the driver of two world wars that many people remember in the dead of today. We didn't call it national competition, we called it national pride. But, but it really meant uh, the same thing. It probably is the thing that's caused the global economic and ecological crisis that, that, we, uh, that we are uh, surrounded with now and the growing gap uh, between rich and poor. So I'm a bit ambivalent about the merits or otherwise of the competitive instinct and of personal uh, ambition. Well, uh, global poverty, world conflict, I'm, I'm not going to assume that I have the answers to those uh, today. But I would like just to explore in myself and in you this, this strange characteristic of, of uh, competition. Shall we do a group confessional? Don't like doing these. Shall we do a very brief hand? Hands up those of you who will admit to being competitive. I didn't think it would be all, and I think it's fair to say it's not all. Right, keep, 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 keep your hands up. I just want to do a chat. I'm glad you are hands up. I've played golf with you. Um, uh, right now, uh, hands down if you think it's a bad thing. Difficult, isn't it? You, 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 you are not really sure. Let's deal, you put your hands down. Let's deal with the easy aspect of uh, competitive instincts. Let's deal with it in sport, because I do feel that's relatively easy. I'm prepared to say, I think in sport, competition's a great thing. I, I, I think it teaches many life skills. 
It teaches you self-discipline. It teaches you self-respect. It teaches you respect for other people. It teaches you how to work in a team. It teaches you how to win, or more likely for me, it teaches me how to lose. I've got more experience of that. I think competition in sport is a very beneficial thing. The operative word there, by the way, is in sport. Competition and sportsmanship together is a good thing. You shake hands before a competition, and you do that, you know, to thank the other person for giving you the opportunity to play the game, or to engage in the competition. And you thank them, and you shake hands afterwards to commiserate with them if they've lost, or more likely with me to congratulate them because they've won, and to thank them for, for the good experience that you've had together. And sportsmanship is very important. And if you think about it, that's why great sportsmen are admired. Uh, Bobby Moore, uh, Bobby Charlton maybe, Juan Manuel Fangio, the racing driver. These were very skilled people, but they were great sportsmen and they're highly respected. Whereas Diego Maradona, Michael Schumacher, effectively are sporting pariahs because they, they, they couldn't compete in a spirit of sportsmanship the former regard as, as admirable attractive people the, the others unattractive and I'll leave you locals here to decide where Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger fit on that particular spectrum I'll leave you to judge I make no uh, observations I have no difficulty with competition in sport But you're probably getting ahead of me when we go to, to Matthew chapter 20. Because you see here, as I said at the beginning, competition gets in the way and can seem very unattractive and can at times seem totally crass. I mean, here in chapter 20, Jesus is, it said, didn't it, in the chapter, he's going to Jerusalem for the last time. The crisis that will occur in Jerusalem is beginning to build. Jesus has a good idea of what is going to happen. But it's difficult for us to imagine what was going through his mind. But it's abundantly clear what is going through the mind of James and John and their mother. They come, uh, it's there isn't it, in, uh, in verse 20. Forgive me reading from the authorised version. I'm a dinosaur. I just feel comfortable with it. Be patient with me. Uh, uh, then came to him the mothers of uh, Zebedee's children with her sons, worship him and asking a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? And she said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on the right and the other on the left, in my kingdom. There are two accounts of this. In one, it's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who ask. In this account, it's their mum. I think it's useful to have those two accounts because they help to tell us. This whole chapter tells us a lot about competition. Competition, like the incident in the motor car, is triggered by events and opportunities. We only become competitive when there's something to compete over, but when there's something to gain. And James and John imagined that the kingdom of heaven was days away. They didn't think it was thousands of years away. They thought it was days away. They thought it was going to happen that week in Jerusalem. Jesus would triumph over the authorities there and would set up a new order. And not only were they, were they very ambitious 
to have a, a senior position in that new administration like cabinet ministers negotiating for the next best roles that they believed that, that it was imminent they wanted to get their applications in first and they had a very worldly view of this heavenly kingdom make no mistake had they realised the true timescale for the kingdom of heaven or its true nature uh, those ambitious instincts those competitive instincts would not have come to the fore the only thing you notice about this kind of competition is that it is both shameful and shameless they're not ashamed to ask they ought to have been they're shameless in that respect but they're shameful and full of guile because they ask through their mum in a quiet way when the other disciples don't know and competition is divisive because notice further down in verse 24 and when the ten heard it they were moved with indignation against the two brethren competition is divisive but the useful thing about having their mum involved it tells us something else very topical and very up to date about competition you're sometimes ambitious and competitive not for yourself but by proxy by proxy in fact the strange thing is when we support a team we're doing this I was very anxious that England would beat Australia yesterday I, I suspected they wouldn't and they didn't but I wanted them to and it's strange when we had the one I would have felt benefited in some way I would have felt better I'd contributed nothing at all to their success but, but I would be associated with, with victory rather than with defeat strange thing really isn't it it's happening up the road or rather playing away this weekend I'm not sure it's strange but, but, but the mum's a bit more nearer to home isn't it the mum is ambitious for the children we've got the original pushy parents here whether it's a tennis star or somebody else I'm not ambitious but I will realise my thwarted ambition in the past through the success of my children I've seen that kind of thing out there yes I know someone's looking I've seen it in here as well I've seen it in, in here. We, 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 could, we, we can seek to be successful and seek to be uh, ambitious to other people. And we do it. I do it. And here's the interesting thing. When I read about it, it looks very unattractive. He, uh, he, James and John and their mother uh, don't come very well, uh, do they, uh, uh, out of, out of uh, this particular uh, chapter. They don't come out of it uh, uh, very well uh, indeed. But let me take you to something which is even more unattractive. The other reading that we took, and you'll begin to anticipate, I'm sure, the themes uh, that we are, are exploring here, to the incident of not so much the ambitious mother, I'm afraid, sisters, but the ambitious wife. You're not coming out of this very well, are you? Mothers and wives trying to succeed through their children and their husbands. I know some of you will be thinking in a male-dominated world, what other opportunity did they have? And you probably have got a point there. But here we've got Jezebel, the ambitious wife. Thank you very much, John, for painting in the context of this. Uh, uh, I don't need to do it. But this 21st chapter is really horrendous, and we could spend longer on this than we've got time. What, what happens here is, is a, 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 a hideous, a dreadful injustice. And it's driven by competition. But it does warn us where untrammeled competition and ambition uh, leads us. Let's just read the first few verses of chapter 21 to you to uh, remind you. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, uh, king of Samaria. 
And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house. And I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or if it seems good to thee, I will give thee the worth in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my father unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavier and displeased because of the word of Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my father. And as we said, he went home and laid down on his bed and sulked. When Tony was speaking to us about jealousy, one of the things I remember him saying is there are different kinds of jealousy. There's the jealousy of those who have nothing, which I would say was justified, in that they believe they should have something. And then he said that there's the jealousy of those who have something, even those who have a lot and, and want more, because they see other people who have things that they imagine themselves not to have. And then he said, and this was very powerful and revealing, he said there is in this world the jealousy of those who have everything and want other people to have nothing. Not just do they not want people to have what they've got, they don't want people to have anything at all. Uh, there's the equivalent of that in competition manifest here uh, with Ahab. Ahab had everything. He was numero uno. He wasn't the first amongst equals. He was the first amongst unequals. He had the lot. He had the whole lot. He had a palace full of servants to look after him. He had stables full of horses, the Old Testament equivalent of the multi-car garage. He had musicians to entertain him. He had gardens where he could stroll. We only envy the things we see. We only compete with those people who we know. Uh, we only desire the things that are close by. Naboth's vineyard was hard against the palace wall. Uh, and, and Ahab wanted it because was, I don't know why he says to grow herbs. I don't think he was particularly a keen gardener, do you? He just wanted it because it was there. Maybe he didn't like the idea of somebody else's house semi-attached to his Maybe he wanted a big conservatory on that side. I don't know what. But he wanted it. Incidentally, um, Naboth's uh, uh, refusal to sell uh, marks him out as, as a fine, upstanding man of integrity. You see, in those days, they didn't compete over the property. In those days, they didn't buy and sell property. In those days, they didn't have a property boom. Because they regarded land very differently. They rarely bought it. It would have been in, in, it was inherited. And ultimately they'd received it from God. Uh, and do you notice, he, he says, God forbid that I should give you my family's inheritance. It was unthinkable that Naboth, even if he was going to get a super inflated booming price for his property, it, it, God forbid that he should sell it. He regarded himself as a steward of that land that he'd received from his ancestors, that he had a duty to pass down in good order to, to, to his children and to their children. It was, a, it was to him a religious and a holy thing, and he wouldn't dream of profiting from that. And so he won't sell. He's a man of integrity. And what happens to him is tragic, and is wicked, and, and is uh, horrendous. Enter the ambitious wife. Enter the scheming uh, ambitious wife uh, Jezebel verse 7 and I have a question for you in a little while and Jezebel his wife said unto him 
Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? You are the king. Arise, eat bread. Let thy heart be merry. And I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And notice what she does. Notice carefully what she does. She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in the city dwelling with Naboth, his contemporaries. And she wrote in letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men of Belial, two dishonest men before him, to bear witness against him saying that thou didst blaspheme God and the king and then carry him out and stone him. And that's what they did. That's what they did. And so the king got the property. She subverts the law. She perverts justice. And the king's first responsibility was to judge the people justly. And she corrupts the prime responsibility that Ahab had as the king. And my question to you is, why? Why did she do it that way? She was a ruthless person. Why didn't she just get two or three men and tell them to go down at night and bump Naboth off with none to inherit that have still have got the property? Why didn't she just bump him off? Because that would have been enough for Jezebel. She wanted to publicly humiliate him. She wanted to take away from him not just his property but his good name as well and his reputation to lift him on high and then to shame him in public and to have him publicly stoned by his contemporaries to ruin him and his family. You see, Jezebel didn't just want to win. She wanted everybody else to lose. It wasn't enough. Jezebel didn't know that she'd won unless everybody else lost. And, and that's the hideous ultimate conclusion of unrivaled, untrammeled competition. It was not enough for her to win. Naboth had resisted her and, and her king and she was going to humiliate him and destroy him. Imagine how he would feel when that fate was coming upon him. Imagine how his family and friends felt. And incidentally, where were the men who could have stood up and contradicted the men of Belial? Where were they? Where were they? Looking out for the main chance, making sure they were on the right side. And that's the dark end of competition. Does that kind of thing exist today? Yeah, it does actually. It does. I once worked for a man who said, it's not enough to win, Richard, others have got to lose. Drive the competition into the dust. It doesn't always happen, but he did finish up in the dust. He did finish up eaten by the, old, the system that he created. It doesn't always happen, mind. In that case, it did. And it does happen today. But it exists too in a more insidious way. And you might think I've gone a bit mad here. But you see, it's there in popular culture as well. Ahab, you get the vineyard and everything else. Naboth, you get nothing. Remind you of anything? You are the weakest link. You're sapped. You see, there used to be uh, a time when you could arrange a quiz show on television, ask a few questions, the bright people got the right answers, and they went away with a few thousand pounds entertainment. That's not good enough anymore. Only one person can win. And the ones who lose have got to be ritually humiliated. 
And they're so anxious to appear on television that they're prepared to be ritually humiliated in, in, in a very strange kind of way. And the, those who don't win anything, they never did win anything, but they're reminded that they're going away with nothing. Or, or you're sacked. You might say, oh, come on, Richard. You're just a grumpy old man. It's just a bit of fun, isn't it? I don't know who said it, but someone once said, we are never so much in earnest except when we are in jest. We make jokes about the things that we really believe in. We make jokes about the things that we that we uh, uh, that are really close to us. And I think this popular culture is is pernicious. I think it's damaging. I think it's very powerful. I think there are twenty and thirty year olds out there who, who really believe in this kind of thing, and 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 are taken in by the lie that these kind of programs perpetuate. And it is a lie that to, to be successful in life, or to be successful in business or commerce, you, you succeed by defeating other people. The truth is you succeed by succeeding with other people, actually, if I might voice a personal view. Uh, but, but the programs peddle the myth that in order to win you must be able to see other people lose. And not just do, do that, but humiliate them while they're being beaten. And that's how you get the Robert Maxwells of this world, and Robinson's former boss, by the way. And that's how you get the Worldcoms and the Enrons, uh, and the, maybe even the Royal Bank of Scotland. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. But, but, but that's, that's how these things happen with unbridled competition. Now, I don't want to leave you in such a, a dark and depressing place. I want to, I want to conclude with what... Uh, Paul once described as, as a more excellent way. I want to take you to my favourite character in Scripture and probably my favourite uh, bit of prose uh, uh, from Scripture. If you want to come with me, I'm in First Samuel uh, 18. There's a man there very similar to Ahab, King Saul. King Saul is the first king of, of the children of Israel. When he was the same, he had everything. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He'd been chosen. He was the king, the leader of the armies. If you'd have got a team, you'd have wanted him on your side. He'd have made a good centre-half, I suspect, or a good second-row forward. He, he was the kind of man that men tended to follow. But the Philistines, as you remember, had a bigger man. They had a bigger centre-half. They had Goliath. And in the previous chapter... The young lad, uh, David, had just gone out and, and slain Goliath with his sling. And, and he's brought into the camp of Saul. And Saul decides to keep him within the camp. And if you look at verse 6, just see how this King Saul, this numero uno, regards this young lad who's just done him a big favour. And it came to pass, verse 6 of 1 Samuel 18, uh, and it came to pass, uh, as they came, when David returned... Sorry, I'll start reading the thing instead of trying to remember what it says. And it came to pass, as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul, with timbrels, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the, and the women answered one another as they played, and said, Saul has slayed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed unto David tens of thousands, unto me they have ascribed but thousands, and what can he have more but the kingdom? 
the growing seeds of paranoia in the extremely competitive man. Instead of being grateful for what Dave has done, he sees him as a threat. But go back to the uh, beginning of the chapter and see how different the son of the king was to the king. And here's probably my favourite character in scripture. Saul's son was Jonathan. Uh, verse, uh, well let's read from verse from the, from the beginning of, of chapter 18. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of, of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own. Verse 4, look what Jonathan does. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him, and gave it to David, and his garments, even his sword, and to the bow, and to the girdle. Jonathan was the one who should have been fearful of David. Uh, of uh, uh, yes, of uh, David. Jonathan was the one who should have inherited the throne. Jonathan was the one who should have been filled with competitive instincts and ambition. Uh, but Jonathan traded friendship for ambition, and he traded uh, uh, competitiveness for self-sacrifice, uh, as we shall see. I don't know what came first with Jonathan, whether he knew that David had already been anointed to be king over Israel, or whether it was his love for the man and his respect for the man. I don't know which came first. But Jonathan didn't allow ambition. He didn't allow those competitive instincts that were there in his father, King Saul, uh, to cloud his judgment, to get in the way of fidelity, friendship, loyalty, and love. Uh, and that's why he seems to us a wholly beautiful and wonderful uh, man in scripture. Let me take you to his, his, finest, his finest hour. It's in the end of first, uh, Sam, uh, the first uh, book of Samuel, chapter 31. He goes out with his father, King Saul, to fight the Philistines for the last time. We won't read it, we haven't time. And he's killed with his father. And my question is, what was he doing there? Why was Jonathan fighting with Saul? He knew Saul was yesterday and David was tomorrow. He knew that Saul had been rejected and David had been anointed. He knew that David would have, have had him as his first lieutenant with open arms and done a far better job than Joab would have done. So why is he there? Why is he there? I'm sure when they went into the final battle with the Philistines, he knew they were doomed. I'm sure he did. Saul seems to know that he's doomed. So why was he there with his neurotic, overly competitive, dysfunctional father? Why? I suppose because he was his father. Neurotic, paranoid, dysfunctional, but his father, who he still loved, and he was loyal to, even though he was wrong. Let me ask you another question. Do you think Jonathan did the right thing? Frankly, I don't know. I know he did a wonderful thing. Might not have been the right thing. But he did a, one, he did a wonderful thing. And, and people who are like that get eulogies like this. It's Remembrance Sunday. People remembering those who've died. Somebody's going to have to write a funeral service for Margaret Hughes and think of things to say about them. One day, 
will do it will do it for me uh, and will do it for you how blessed you will be if somebody writes these kind of words about you the beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places how are the mighty fallen tell it not in Gath publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistine rejoice let the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph ye mountains of Gilboa let there be neither dew neither let there be rain upon you nor fields of offerings for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away the shield of Saul as though it had not been anointed with oil from the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty the bow of Jonathan turned not back nor the sword of Saul returned not empty Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives and listen and in their deaths they were not divided Jonathan uh, saw to that they were swifter than eagles they were stronger than lions ye daughters of Israel weep over Saul who clothed you with scarlet and other delights who put an ornament of gold upon your apparel how are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle O Jonathan thou wast slain in thine high places I am distressed for thee my brother Jonathan very pleasant hast thou been unto me thy love to me was wonderful passing the love of women how are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished Richard thank you very much some lovely and important lessons there for us the thing that worries me is that I see myself in some of the bad things I see an awful lot of myself in some of the bad things and that worries me we've come to remember somebody who in fact if he was a competitor would have won hands down every time and of course he was a competitor he competed with the Pharisees and anyone else for their hearts he competed for their hearts and for the hearts of all the people and for our hearts yet he writes while they were eating Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to the disciples saying take and eat this is my body and in John John tells us Jesus said this to them I tell you the truth unless you eat my flesh the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you he wants us to take himself into us he wants to succeed he wants to succeed like those who run the race he wants to get there and in a sense get there first but not on his own he wants to succeed with us I thought it was a lovely thought you put there Richard he wants to succeed with us we're going to break bread and drink wine now but before we break bread Charles is going to come forward and going to lead us in thanks for the bread Father God Lord you, you give us contrasts you show us light and dark you show us goodness and you show us evil 
and you help us and you call us to transcend and rise above our natural selves to follow you. Father, as we, as we sit here and look at ourselves honestly, there's James and John in each of us. And Lord, there's even Jezebel in each of us. Thank you that you have shown us a better way, a more excellent way. And you lift us up and help us to overcome. Lord Jesus, we're going to be sharing this bread together. The bread that you first shared on that night before your death. And you did other things that night too, Lord. And I'm thinking particularly now, at the time you took your coat off, you knelt down, and you washed your disciples' feet. You, who are the greatest, made yourself a servant. Help us to follow you. Amen. Jesus took the bread, knowing that it represented himself, and broke it and gave it to them. And I think it's saying as much as anything else, look, you're joined to me. You're with me in it. I'm not here on my own. I want you here with me in this fellowship, in this love, in this family. All of you, eat of it. We sang earlier about a solemn hour. Why? Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive. And he's living with us now and he's with us here. Let's rejoice in him. We're going to sing before we take the, the wine together. We're going to sing from the praise of the Lord, number 46. I bow my knee before your throne. I know my life is not my own. I offer up a song of praise to bring you pleasure, Lord. Let's, let's rejoice in our singing and rejoice in our sharing of his body and his blood together. Let's stand and sing this together. Number 46. So we're going to share this wine together, the symbol of his blood, his life that we're going to share. And Andy Lang is going to lead us in prayer for that. Almighty God, our loving Father, we thank you that your love is not limited, that there is more than enough for all of us. Lord, thank you that you shower your love and your grace on us without stopping to consider whether or not we're good enough without thinking whether we've worked long enough or hard enough for you just because you love us and we remember now your son your wonderful son Jesus and the way that he lived the way that he showed us to live we remember his blood shed for us and that promise of a future, a promise of a part in your kingdom, starting now and going through to eternity when your son is back in the earth. We pray that you will be with us now, that you'll be close to us as we share this wine. And that it will invigorate us and enliven us
to live lives in service of you, in celebration of your love and your grace, and showing that to those around us. We pray that you'd be with us now in Jesus. Amen. Let's then drink this cup together. So meeting together by singing, we'll offer a prayer afterwards. Lord of all power, I give you my will. In joyful obedience, your task to fulfil. Your bondage is freedom. Your service is song. And held in your keeping, my weakness is strong. Dear Father, dear Father, thank you. Thank you so much for all your blessings. Father, help us to give in the way that you give. I know that's virtually impossible, but help us to move along in that direction, to give as you have given. Thank you, Lord. Go with us as we go from this place and stay with us and help us to to know you with us too. And be honoured, be glorified in us, Lord. Thank you. Amen.